Let's gather around the synagogue in Capernaum and peek through the windows and listen to the Lord Jesus Christ and his final concluding remarks to those that are gathered there from his feeding of the 5,000. Turn with me to John chapter 6, and by God's grace, we'll cover the last 12 verses today. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Capernaum was not very large. The synagogue would not have been very large. Those there are the small remnant left from the 15,000 or so that may have been involved in the feeding of the 5,000 men beside women and children. They were pursuing Jesus for reasons other than what count to him. They were pursuing Jesus for reasons that do not count for us. We want to examine ourselves to make sure that we are following him for the right reasons and that we are following him with all the passion and commitment, sacrifice, cost, and discipleship that we can give him. We have read already this morning Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, with the emphasis on verse 25 that tells us, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh from heaven. These locals, these local Galileans, who knew the family of Jesus, knew his father and his mother, knew his brothers and sisters, knew the names of his brothers and sisters, they said, How can this man have come down from heaven. Well, he did come down from heaven. And he is with us today. And he is communicating to us by his gospel that he committed to apostles who wrote down his gospel for us so that we can come up to a window of the synagogue in Capernaum and hear his final remarks to this audience. I want to read to you verses 60 through 66. He has been dealing with this same audience for the entirety of the chapter, though it has dwindled. Many, therefore, of his disciples, these are false disciples in word only, in profession only, these are not his apostles, these are not the 70 that were sent out two by two, these are the men of Galilee who wanted free bread. Disciple has no more meaning than being a student, a follower, or a learner of a man. Thus far, these men have called Jesus rabbi. They have not called him what Peter is going to call him in verses 67 through 71. Thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. So there's a huge difference. Sorry about the interruption. I don't want you confused. The word disciples without the word indeed on it, may not mean anything at all. Right. Remember, a disciple indeed is one who continues following Jesus Christ. These are going to turn away. The last thing they are is disciples indeed. Verse 60, Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. 
The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Amen and amen. amen. These Jews have their promised and prophesied Messiah standing before them. From the very first three verses of this chapter, we know that this crowd has followed Jesus even to a desert, mountainous, wilderness place because of the miracles he'd performed. While there, he has compassion upon the multitude because they have nothing to eat. And so he multiplies a lad's lunch to feed them. They are all filled and 12 baskets full of fragments are taken up of the leftovers. They see that second miracle. They then watch him closely. He goes into a mountain. His apostles take a boat and go back to Capernaum. They wait until morning. They do not see Jesus. And they eventually take shipping themselves and go to Capernaum. And they find the Lord Jesus in Capernaum. How in the world did he get there without taking a boat? He walked on the water. And this is when the apostles saw him walking on the water. And he calmed a storm and brought them to their desired haven. They recognize the miracles and they follow him. They try to make him king. He refuses their gesture. He leaves them. They find him. He then confronts them that the only reason they're interested in him is because they want the free food like he had given them the previous day. He then addresses them repeatedly that their pursuit of natural food for natural pleasure, natural ease, and natural sustenance of life was far inferior to the bread that he was, that he was going to give for eternal life. And so there's a lesson for us to always make the spiritual things more important than the natural things. The eternal things more important than the temporal things of this life. They couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. He explains to them the great doctrines of salvation in verses 37 through 40. They can't even hear him as he's describing glorious truth in verses that we love. All they can do is complain that they know him and his family, and how can he possibly say he came down from heaven in verse 42? They have already shown serious disrespect for him by asking him in verses 30 and 31 to give them a sign. Show us a sign. They're following him because of signs he'd already shown them. But they want more signs. And they give him a hint as to what they'd actually like by saying, Moses gave our fathers bread in the desert. Remember? Every day. Remember? For 40 years. How about that one? We don't really care that you healed all of our relatives. We don't care that you gave us one meal from a lad's lunch. We don't care that you walked on the Sea of Galilee and calmed a storm. We'd like daily bread. And that's when he took their bread up and said, I'm the real bread. I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. And you better eat me, which is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. 
And they murmur at him. And so he takes his lesson a little further and tells them about total depravity in verses 44 and 45, that without him opening their eyes, regenerating them and drawing them and teaching them internally, they would never see or understand anything he was saying. He goes further. He presses his metaphors further by taking up drinking my blood and eating my flesh, which just means to embrace and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as our crucified, risen, reigning and returning Redeemer. It's all that it means. There's no mystery in the words. It's a metaphor. The whole purpose of the passage is to believe on Jesus Christ. When we get to the final verses of this chapter, Peter does not say, let's have communion. Because there's no communion in John 6. All there is is, Lord, we believe. That's all there's ever been in this chapter. In verses 28 and 29, when the crowd asked Jesus, what might we do to work the works of God? Jesus gave them the one work he wanted. This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. That's the issue. There's no cannibalism. There's no sacramentalism. There's no symbolism of the Lord's Supper. It's purely metaphorical and figurative to believe that Jesus is that Christ, the one described in this passage, the Son of the living God. So we get to verse 59. It tells us that he's in the synagogue at Capernaum. And verse 60 now tells us that many of his disciples, when they had heard this, drinking his blood and eating his flesh and everything surrounding that severe metaphor, they, they looked at it literally as cannibalism and knew that they couldn't do that because of Moses' law. Others look at this chapter and make it sacramental. There's no sacrament in John 6. Peter never mentions a sacrament. The sacrament wasn't to be instituted and ordained for another year or two. That was impossible to even fulfill. It's not symbolic, like Baptists at the Lord's Supper. It's metaphorical of believing on Christ, which is exactly what Peter did, and which is what Jesus had told that crowd they ought to do. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Many of the 15,000 that had sought out and pursued Jesus, it's whittled down now, the synagogue in Capernaum couldn't hold 15,000, couldn't hold 1,500, but it's been whittled down, and Jesus now is dealing with the final ones that are left, and they're going to leave him. He had left them when he saw their foolish ambition to make him a king. He went to Capernaum without them knowing it by a miracle. He continually pressed them by his metaphors. And the Bible now tells us that many have not had a change in heart. They haven't learned anything from all that he has said. They haven't been moved to think of things eternal and things spiritual. They're still thinking things physical and things natural. So if many leave, how many are left? Few. The truth has always been held by only a few. How big was the church in the day of Noah? Eight. And we only know that it had one good member. Because we don't read a thing about Noah's wife, his three sons, or their three wives, 
as being great fearers of God and followers of God in the Bible anywhere. But we are told about Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The church was small. The New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the early days before Pentecost was gathered in Acts chapter 1. How big was it? 120 souls. After Jesus had preached to crowds numbering 15,000 or more in various places throughout Galilee, throughout Judea, there was still only 120 faithful followers of Christ Jesus in the upper room. The truth has always been held by a small number. The Bible warns us that broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But straight is the gate, straight, like a straight jacket, restricted, restricted and limited. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. That's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth, implying that it would be so rare to have true believers left on earth when Jesus returns that they'll be in a small minority. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't care what anyone else thinks about numbers. We know that he never had great crowds following him. Whenever there was a great multitude following him, he would point out the cost of discipleship to them to whittle it down to hardly any. You can read about it throughout the Gospels. Because when he would press that they needed to hate all their dearest relatives in comparison to loving him, that was too much for most to bear. If men came to him with wealth, he would point out they needed to sell their stuff and give it to the poor. That was too much for them to bear. He would tell them they needed to take up their cross daily to follow him. Crucifixion is not a pleasant way to go. It's not a pleasant way to live and it's not a pleasant way to die. But Jesus told them to take up their cross daily. And people didn't like that. And so his crowd was continually reduced in size. The Jews were persecuting them if they converted. They were being thrown out of the temple worship. If they converted, it was difficult. Relatives were turning against them. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us they were having their possessions stolen by following Jesus Christ. So there were fewer and fewer. And so we shouldn't be surprised as we look at John 6 and verse 60 that from a crowd of 15,000, do you know how many he is going to address at the end? Twelve. He's going to address twelve as we get to the end of this chapter. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, and what they had heard was him pushing this metaphor on them, I'm bread, eat me, I'm the bread of God. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Drink my blood. Jews couldn't drink blood. Jews couldn't even eat cooked blood. The flesh had to be, the blood had to be drained from the flesh they cooked as their meat. He had taught them election and sovereignty of God, saying, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. After having told them, You do not believe me even though you've seen me. And so they understood that he was saying to them, the Father did not give you to me. Then he explained, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And they shall all be taught of God. Verses 44 and 45. God does an internal teaching to change men first, and only then can they hear external teaching. That is the great difference among men. 
If it were not for the internal teaching, none of us would ever hear the external teaching and believe it and obey it. God must change us on the inside first. And so he tells them that, that that's the reason they're murmuring against him and they haven't believed on him. And it's the right explanation. The problem is not with Jesus' text that he chose for his sermon. The problem is not with the way Jesus delivered the sermon. The problem was not with Jesus' pulpit manner. He was the perfect preacher. The problem was with the hearers. God had not changed them like he had changed a few of them. And a few of them he had indeed changed. Once upon a time, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said to his apostles, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And his apostles popped out the current thinking that he might be Jeremiah, he might be John the Baptist, he might be some other prophet. Jesus said, But whom do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Beautiful. You know, what do we do when we read that passage of Scripture? Amen, Peter! Amen! And we're going to say it here when we get to John chapter 6 and verse 69. Amen, Peter! Then Jesus turned to Peter and said, Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood hath not revealed that to thee. It was not external teaching that taught you any of that. Flesh and blood hath not revealed that to thee, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. See, he had taught Peter. Like verse 45. It is written in the prophets. This was an Old Testament doctrine that had been taught there. And they shall be all taught of God. All of God's elect will be taught of God so that they know God and His Son, Jesus Christ, from the inside out, so that when they hear the truth through their ears, they believe it and obey it. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. But of these 15,000, only a few are going to come to Christ. The rest are going to leave, which tells us by this verse that they were not taught of God. They were not drawn by God. And I hope that that is all understood and easily grasped. Small numbers should never bother a Bible reader. Because it was always small. When God chose to pick a nation to make His church in the Old Testament, He picked Israel. Deuteronomy 7 tells us that of all the nations of the earth, What was the smallest nation on earth? Israel. He chose the smallest. All the other nations, he totally ignored. They never got the Bible. They never got worship. They never got religion. They never got anything. They didn't get Moses. They didn't get the prophets. The prophets never visited them. The Bible tells us that. The smallest. So it shouldn't bother us. God once raised up a prophet named Zechariah to come back and encourage the Jews that had gathered themselves from Babylon to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. In 550 or so B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had leveled the city of Jerusalem and destroyed Solomon's temple. The Jews were taken captive to Babylon. They came back under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra and Joshua the high priest. But it was a discouraging task to find a mound of rubble that had been left for 70 years while they were captives in Babylon to rebuild the city and the temple. So God raised up Haggai and Zechariah, two of the minor prophets in your Old Testament, to encourage them. And Zechariah said, 
Not to despise the day of small things. Because when you looked at the 45,000 refugees that came back from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem, 45,000 is not very many. If you take into account women and children, they had to take that mound of rubble and turn it back into a city and build its infrastructure and raise a temple to the glory of God. Don't despise the day of small things, Zechariah told them. You're soon going to be shouting, Grace! Grace unto it! Because God was going to bless them in the matter. And all that matters is that God is blessing us, that God is with us. Size never proved anything except error. Size proves error. Because it's the majority that have always been wrong. Jesus taught that if you believe something that is highly esteemed among men, it's an abomination in the sight of God. Because the truth is rare. For instance, young Jonah gave us Psalm 115 today. In Psalm 115, there was a contrast made between the worshipers of Jehovah and the worshipers of idols. Numerically, statistically, how many have worshipped Jehovah over the 6,000-year history of the world? A very, very, very small few minority. How many have worshipped idols? The vast majority of the human race. The comparison. This isn't hard saying who can hear it. John, our writer, by the Spirit, called them disciples, but they were only disciples in appearance because they followed Jesus for a little while. A real disciple is one who gives up his life and will do anything for his Savior. And he's called a disciple indeed. And we've been over that enough already that I won't go over it again. Believing on Jesus Christ requires a whole lot more than just admission of his miracle power. These people were following him for his miracles. Of course, they wanted a fourth category of miracle, and that was perpetual food. But that is not enough to be a disciple indeed. That is not a true follower of Jesus Christ. A true follower of Jesus Christ is not just intellectually looking at the evidence and saying, this man could very well be the Messiah. It's falling at his feet and saying, thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. What wilt thou have me to do? That's totally different. I appreciate that some of you appreciated the difference between this crowd and Peter. The first miracle that Peter saw up close and personal was when he was on his ship and he had been fishing all night and had taken how many? None. Nothing. He sees Jesus in the morning and Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side. Lord, we've been fishing all night and taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, we will let down our nets again. Amen. And he let down his net again, and he had to call his partners, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, because there were so many fish, he was going to sink their boats. Right. When Peter saw that miracle, are you with me? Yep. These 5,000 were fed by a miracle after they chose to follow Jesus because of healing miracles. Then Jesus walked across the Sea of Galilee, they had miracles, but all they did was ask for another one. We want another one because we want more goodies. Peter said, 
Depart from me, O Lord. He fell down at his feet. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He confessed his wickedness in the presence of the Lord of glory on earth. And that is what we ought to do. And that is the difference. That is the huge difference between a carnal hearer and a spiritual hearer. A dead, unregenerate hearer and a regenerate hearer that's been taught on the inside. What would teach a man that you should get down on your face and not be, you shouldn't be jumping up and down doing jumping jacks about your big take of fishes. You should be on your face before the feet of this man and telling him you are a sinner and that he ought to leave you because you have nothing to give him. Oh, what a difference. Can we do that today? Each of us in our hearts. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have nothing to give you. But thank you for saving me. And what I have to give you, I give it all. I give it freely. And if you never give me anything in this world, I'll still give you everything I have for as long as I live for nothing. Just a total difference. And the only way that we'll ever do that with meaning, we'll ever say those things with sincerity, is if God's taught us on the inside. Believing on Jesus Christ requires a whole lot more than just seeing that he could perform miracles and he must be from God. It should change a person's heart so that they repent. Because see, repentance is a gift of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at this statement, and you know it well. We just want to remind ourselves that it's like such a gift that when it occurs, we should be willing and eager to thank God for it. That we've ever repented from wrongdoing and totally changed our lives to reverse direction and go toward God and toward Jesus Christ and away from our sins. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is writing to one of his ministers, Timothy, a pastoral epistle is what we call these three epistles, First and 2 Timothy and Titus. He's telling Timothy how to be a perfect minister. But he's explaining to Timothy that even if you're a perfect minister, and Jesus was a perfect minister, unless God gives repentance, there will be no result except rebellion, hatred, and crucifixion. That's what the people, the neighbors, the loving Galileans, the loving Jews did to Jesus of Nazareth. They killed him for preaching the truth and performing miracles and being from God and having no accusation that would line up and make sense on the day of his trial. Verse 24 of 2 Timothy 2, Paul telling Timothy how to be a perfect minister. The servant of the Lord must not strive. Shouldn't be a fighter and a debater to the point where it becomes odious and wrong. But he, but be gentle unto all men. Apt to teach. That means a good preacher. Patient. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may be recovered, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Do you follow? Paul tells Timothy how to do it. And if you were to back up, you would find even more verses about how to be a good minister. But even if Timothy was a good minister, God must peradventure depending on his will in the matter, give repentance for a person to stop opposing themselves 
and submit to the truth and be recovered out of the snare of the devil. It's God's gift. So back to John chapter 6, and we want to be thankful for that gift of God for granting us repentance to hear and believe the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Calling on the name of Jesus is not enough. It's got to be obedience to him. Jesus, in the red writing, in our red letter edition Bibles, described the great day of judgment that's coming. He said in Matthew 7 and verse 21, many, many, there were many disciples. They had followed him for a while. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name done many wonderful miracles, and in thy name cast out devils. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That is the truth of the gospel. Many of us were raised by that easy believism that all we had to do was make a decision for Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade or some other gospel outlet under a blue light special where we could save ourselves from hell by some little momentary decision for Jesus. That is not taught in the Bible. Jesus said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. These people would not do that. They did follow Jesus. They knew his name. They may be part of the crowd that says in the, in the great day of judgment, Lord, Lord, we followed you at the Sea of Galilee. I never knew you. The knowledge on which our eternal life rests is God's knowledge of us and the Lord Jesus Christ's knowledge of us, not ours of him. He better know you and your name better be written in the book of life because that is going to be the difference maker. Many are going to say they know him and they'll be cast into hell. Let us go there trusting God for knowing us. And he's made a change. How do we know that he knows us? Because he's changed us from the inside out. Because we who were foolish want to be wise. We who were wicked want to be righteous. We who didn't care about the gospel now want to hear more of it. We who disobeyed almost any commandment given to us now want to know whatever the Bible has to say that we might do it. That is a huge change. That's the change we want to see. That's the change this crowd didn't show. We have preached many times on this subject before. My favorite, whatever that means from a pastor, sub- sermon preached on this subject is salvation by works. Because without works, faith is dead, meaningless, and no better than a devil's faith. The devils believe and tremble. We want to believe and have it change our lives. Let me go forward. Real faith that satisfies the Bible criteria as legitimate should be our only goal. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
Now, if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, does that mean that I can preach the word of God to someone that's not born again and bring forth faith? Impossible. Because John 6 has already proven that that can't happen. Was Jesus preaching able to draw forth faith from those that weren't born again? No, not a single one of them. He said, if a man hasn't been drawn by God, he's not going to come and believe on me. If he hasn't been taught by God on the inside, even I can't help him by teaching him on the outside. He's got to be taught of God. We understand that. But when we hear the word of God and we've been taught on the inside, it matches up in our understanding in our souls. And we, that is the truth. What makes that difference? The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto them which are called, it's the power and wisdom of God. Why does, why does the greater sized audience hear gospel preaching and say, that's a bunch of foolishness, and just go their own way? Go to the golf course, go to the television, go to the ball game, go to their jobs, because they don't care. But then there's this smaller segment. They hear the same message. They hear the same message. That, that is the power and wisdom of God. That is an incredible story. That gospel record is incredible. I believe that. I will dedicate the rest of my life to that. What makes that difference? Because one person's better than the other? Not a chance. We're all the same. We're all depraved. We're all wicked. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Lord made the difference. And it's by His grace. And every, every syllable that comes out of our mouths must be to the grace of God forever changing us. It's not because I had good parents. It's not because I grew up memorizing the Bible. None of those things helped me. You wouldn't want to have met me in the eighth grade. When I began my descent into hell. The Lord makes the difference. All glory to God. It's not sincerity that makes the difference. Most false believers are sincere. Muslims are sincere. You've got to give them that, don't you? They'll strap a body bomb on and walk into a restaurant and blow themselves into small pieces for their Allah and their Muhammad and their Quran. They're sincere. Sincerity doesn't get it. There's one thing that does get it. Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen, Peter. Preach it, Peter. Preach it all afternoon. We want to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ being the Son of the living God. And Peter was happy to do that. After Jesus went back to heaven and filled him with the Holy Ghost and took away his spirit of fear, which caused him to deny the Lord three times in the presence of a little maid, but boy, in the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, go read his sermon, Acts chapter 2. Go read that sermon. If that doesn't fire you up, what will? And when God made choice for Cornelius, the first Gentile family, to hear the truth of the gospel, the Italian band of Romans that were in Caesarea, here comes Peter. We're going to read more about him in just a, well, a few hours. A few minutes in the second assembly. The faith in Jesus Christ as a miracle worker was not enough. I want you to know that as you read through the Gospels. Remember, the devils fully believed that Jesus was the Christ. When Jesus of Nazareth 
on earth, not glorified, in a state of humility, nothing attractive about him, the Bible tells us, when he would meet a man possessed of a devil, that man with the devilish influence on his inside would fall down at the feet of the Lord Jesus and worship him. Right. And the devils would say through that man's vocal cords, we know who thou art, thou Jesus of Nazareth, thou art the Holy One of God. Art thou come to torment us before the time? They know the identity of Jesus. They know the authority of Jesus. They know the prophecies concerning Jesus. And they know that he is their captain and Lord, and he is going to send them all to a burning hell forever. They all knew that. That is a lot of doctrine. But did that get them to heaven? Not a chance. Did it change their lives? Not a chance. People have asked me for years, and I've asked myself for a long time, if devils know all those things, why don't they repent? Because sin doesn't allow you to repent. Sin is terrible. Sin is deceiving. Sin is blinding. Sin is hardening. And it has hardened them in rebellion that they know has no good end for them. Wouldn't you want to repent if you know that he's the Holy One of God and he has the power to torment you for eternity? Isn't there a little bit of you inside that would want to repent? Yes, because the Lord's put it in there. But it's not in them. And if the Lord hadn't put it in us, we wouldn't care. I could preach these same things and a person will get up and walk out and want to go do their little stupid smoke, soap bubble games of what they think is pleasure. Because they can't see the glory of eternal blessings through Jesus Christ. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, they didn't like his preaching. And that's a warning to us. Sometimes you may read things that are harder in the Bible than other things. Harsher than other things in the Bible. Love it all. Don't even think a negative thought inside because the Lord Jesus Christ sees and knows all those thoughts. Let's embrace everything that he teaches, everything that he says, everything that he does. Some of his things may be different from the Jesus of this world. That's okay. We don't want the Jesus of this world. We want the Jesus of the Bible. We want truth. It might not be politically correct. We don't care. It might not be good pulpit manner. I mean, when Jesus sat down and got himself a wooden handle and then took some leather scourge, leather cords and made it into a scourge and then got up and kicked over the tables of the money changers and beat those people out of the temple, overturning their money and their cash registers and everything. Do you know how much noise there was when you chase livestock across granite or marble and when you're turning over tables and there's coins running everywhere and people are shouting and screaming as the Lord Jesus Christ unleashed his whip and somebody will say, that's not my Jesus. And I will say, then your Jesus isn't the Bible Jesus because that is the Bible Jesus. There is a time for him to do something like that when they were abusing the house of God by turning it into a house of merchandise. They were making money off it. And so you read something like that and you you say, that's not very good pulpit manner. Joel would never do something like that. Billy Graham would never do something like that. He's such a gentleman. Well, Jesus did do that. And we want the Jesus of the Bible. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? This is a hard saying. It was a hard saying. 
it, it, it sounded like unintelligible cannibalism to the ignorant. Drink my blood and eat my flesh, because it was a metaphor. It was hard to accept. It was contrary to what they'd been taught by Moses and the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes. His response in the next verse lets us know that Jesus knew that there was a problem. They had not understood his message. Now, Jesus knew that every sentence of the way. You understand that, don't you? Jesus knew that this audience did not understand him a single sentence, except that he said he came down from heaven and they didn't believe it. So it was either they didn't understand it or they refused to accept it. Either case, both cases are terrible. Jesus has told us that sometimes he used difficult language so that they could not understand. Remember why he spoke in parables. The disciples ask, why are you speaking in parables? I can't understand you. Because I don't want them to understand. It's not given to them to understand. It's given to you to understand. Now here, come over, come over to the side and I'll tell you what the parable of the sower is all about. That's Matthew 13, Luke chapter 8. Matthew 15, he was offensive by talking about what goes into a mouth. You Jews are so scrupulous about what goes into the mouth. Sin comes out of the mouth. Who cares what goes into the mouth? That goes out into the draft. That's not very politically correct either, is it? To talk about the sewer. And so the disciples pulled Jesus aside again and said, do you know that the way you just talked about the sewer and what goes in here comes out in the draft? Do you know that that offended the, disciples, the, the Pharisees? Jesus said, they're blind leaders of the blind. Let them both fall into the ditch. Every plant... Every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Do you know what he was saying? Those Pharisees were not planted by God. Right. Those are tares of the wicked one. Everyone else understands my speech perfectly and loves it that I'm condemning the scrupulousness of the Pharisees and exalting the morality of my followers, that it's what comes out. You know, it's what comes out of our hearts and out of our thoughts and out of our tongue that hurts others and is sin. Evil thoughts, blasphemies, lies, adulteries. Heart, head, out. Out. It doesn't go in. Jesus' doctrine was beautiful, but it was offensive. Did he change it? No. He just doubled down on it. Understand that. His response is going to tell us in the next verse. He could easily have explained his metaphor, couldn't he have? Could he have easily explained it again? But he didn't. He knew their problem was the fact that they were unregenerate. There was no way to help them. Jesus' response, properly viewed, is contrary to most Christian thinking. What would most Christians think should happen in verse 60 when your audience says, this isn't hard saying, who can hear it? Well, folks, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I taught it in a way that was difficult for you to understand. If you'll hang around for just a few more minutes, I'm going to pull up some PowerPoint slides and I'm going to make this very simple for you. Did Jesus do that? No. Did Jesus say, wait, wait a minute, hold on. Don't leave because you didn't understand it and you thought it was hard. Listen, we're going to have a rock concert tonight and Starbucks is going to be here. And we're going to have a, we're going to have a showing. It's going to be the premier showing of the shack. So hang around and you can watch Aunt Jemima be God out in the woods at a little shack. It sold 20 million copies in the world. Surely that's not a hard saying because 20 million people have watched it. That's the raging Christian movie. Christian. That's the raging blasphemous movie right now. Right. 
Did Jesus do anything like that? No. Did he say, apostles, apostles, after them. Don't let them get away. Tell them that I love them. There was none of that. Now listen, the reason, the reason is because when you turn on the television and you watch these televangelists come on, they're not like this Jesus. This is the true Jesus. The, the difference maker is not the method. The difference maker in getting an audience to respond is not the method. It's not the text. It's not the context. It's not the preaching ability. It's not the personality of the pastor. It's the power of God in changing the audience on the inside first. Amen. And it makes all the difference in the world. Right. With that introduction... Can we start into John 6 now? <laughs> Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? These are the, the false disciples. Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples, that is, these false disciples following him, murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? Does this bother you? The way I've just preached for the last number of verses, does this bother you? Does it offend you? We've been over enough. You can understand this now, can't you? Jesus knew all along that they didn't understand. He could hear them murmuring among themselves. So they didn't murmur directly at him. He knew what they were saying. This is a hard saying. This is ridiculous. Who can accept this? This guy's saying crazy things. Does this offend you? Verse 62. What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? This is a rhetorical question. Does this, does this offend you? The way I preach to you, that bother you. You don't like it. You won't accept it. What if I was to give you a show and tell right now? What if I was to give you a demonstration of my power that I am the Son of God? What if right now... I was just to stretch out my hands and lift up my eyes to heaven and levitate right off this earth and go right back up through the clouds and through the interstellar spaces back into the presence of God where I came from. What and if I were to do that in front of you? Question mark. Do you know the answer to the question? It wouldn't change a thing. It wouldn't change a thing. They would still not believe. He had already done things comparable enough to that. He had healed their relatives. He had fed the 5,000 with a small lad's lunch. He had walked the Sea of Galilee. He had calmed a storm. What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? This is hypothetical. I do not believe that Jesus is referring to what he actually did in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11 because these people didn't see that. There were a few Galileans called the 11 that saw it, that were looking up into heaven when it occurred. This is hypothetical. What and if you were to see me ascend back into heaven, that wouldn't make a difference because the difference maker has to be God from the inside out. And that's verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth. What spirit quickens? The Holy Spirit. Does the little s bother you? How many verses do you want with a little s? It is the spirit that quickeneth. It takes the Holy Spirit to give life. Should we assume that since we're reading John? Since we're reading John, 
Has John told us before we get to John chapter 6 that the Holy Spirit has a work to do in order for a person to see the kingdom of heaven? Right. Yes. He told Nicodemus that in John chapter 3. What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? If you were to see with your physical eyes me go back up to heaven, it wouldn't change you. Because it's the Spirit that makes a person alive to see spiritual truth. It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. What we have by first birth to our parents and what we took to school and learned how to read and write and what we may have taken to college to get a degree, the flesh, this collection that we have by our first birth, it is steeped in wickedness. It is depraved, corrupt, and rebellious against God. It doesn't matter what visual demonstration, what audio demonstration, what doctrine you hear, what events you see, it's not going to change you. It doesn't matter if you're adopted and put in a good home. In the land of uprightness, they will still learn wickedness. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 10. God has to change a person on the inside. And so he says, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The Holy Spirit has to make you alive. The word quicken means to make alive. Sometimes in the New Testament, the word quicken is for resurrection. Sometimes it's talking about when Jesus comes back, some are going to be dead and some are going to be alive, but it says the quick and the dead. Quick means alive. To be quickened means to be brought to life. It is the Holy Spirit that brings a person to spiritual life, to where they're able to perceive, understand, and love the truth of Jesus Christ. The flesh profiteth nothing. There is no profit in the flesh at all. You can hear all the teaching you want. You can watch all the sermons you want. There can be miracles. It doesn't work. Abraham told the rich man who begged for Lazarus to go back from heaven, come up from the dead, and go back to his five brothers and tell them not to come to that place. But Abraham said it's not going to do them any good. They have the scriptures every Sabbath day in the synagogue. Father Abraham, they don't like to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Well, that's too bad. If they don't like the, the scriptures in the synagogue, then they're not going to like the fact if Lazarus comes back from the dead. Right. They'll have another reason not to believe. It is the spirit that quickeneth. Right. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now listen, the words spoken, follow with me so that we understand this verse well. There's pages of outline, and I'm not going to belabor the point. It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates. The flesh you have by your first birth has no ability to understand anything that I've taught or would show. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. The words that Jesus was speaking is the sermon of John chapter 6. The words themselves were simply audio sounds coming from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. They weren't spirit. A spirit is an ethereal being that has no body. The word spirit here is for spiritual. The words that I speak unto you, they are spiritual. And the words that I speak unto you, they have as content eternal life. The, the, sermon, wasn't, the sermon wasn't life. The sermon wasn't quickening. If the sermon gave life, what would have happened to this audience? They would have all been quickened. But they weren't quickened. Because even if it's Jesus preaching, it's still the Holy Spirit that has to quicken in order to receive the content. It's the content. It's the information of his words. 
what I just preached to you had spiritual content about eternal life. And if the Holy Spirit hasn't quickened you, as it hasn't, it doesn't mean anything to you. That's John 63. But there are some of you that believe not. The Spirit has to quicken a person to believe, but there are some of you that believe not. What does that mean? The Spirit hasn't quickened you. For Jesus knew from the beginning, I'm in verse 64, who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Jesus continued on explaining what was going on. This is the crucial moment of truth. The audience has just said, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? Who can receive it? They are about to walk away from him. This is the moment of truth. This is when Jesus Christ has an audience at the moment of truth. What's he going to do? He tells them it wouldn't matter if I was to ascend back up to heaven because it's the Holy Spirit that has to regenerate you. Your flesh profits nothing. I don't care what you've heard in your synagogues. I don't care what you've heard in the temple. I don't care what you've heard from your teachers and your rabbis. Until you're born again, you cannot see the true kingdom of Jesus Christ in this world. And I know... And I knew that some of you weren't going to believe anyway because I've known that from the beginning. And John puts that in there for us to understand in verse 64. And then Jesus took up again in verse 65, Therefore, therefore said I unto you. Jesus used the word therefore. When you're reading and you see the word therefore, you should ask, what is the therefore there for? Because therefore is drawing a conclusion. Therefore said I unto you, the reason back in 44, I told you that no man can come to me except he were drawn by my Father in heaven. That that I told you before, I'm telling you again, except it were given unto him of my Father. That is why you don't believe. The issue is not my hard preaching. The issue is not my poor pulpit manner. Whatever they wanted to accuse Jesus of, he said, that isn't the issue. The issue is you. The issue is a heart condition. You have not been born again. The Holy Spirit has not quickened you. You're still in the flesh. Remember when Jesus talked to Nicodemus? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You're still in the flesh. That's why. Therefore said I to you, I told you already why you can't understand and why my preaching is irritating and provoking you because you're not changed from the inside. Verse 65. Jesus, this is the moment of truth. These are the final words of Jesus to this audience. Total depravity. Without regeneration, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll never believe. Right. All that the Father giveth me in election shall come to me. Because all that the Father giveth me, the Father will draw, and they'll come to me. You haven't been given to me. He's going to say the same thing in chapter 10 about the sheep. Almost the same line is followed in a beautiful sermon about Jesus being the good shepherd, and he gets to the end, he says, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. My Father gave me the sheep, and I give to the sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, but you are not of my sheep. Now that's hard doctrine. That is flat-out hard doctrine. That's not acceptable in very many places. But that's what Jesus preached. Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. That's why I told you that, you can't understand what I'm preaching because you haven't been born again. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. That is terrible. They had followed the Lord Jesus Christ because of his miracles, because of some intellectual agreement with his preaching. 
But when he pressed them, and when he told them that without regeneration, without the Holy Spirit's work on the inside, you'll never hear or believe, no matter what I were to show you, and no matter what I was to say, they left him. What are you going to do today? What are you going to do today? You love this Lord Jesus Christ just the way he is? The very words that he preaches? Are you willing to live for him? Because just believing isn't enough. Are you willing to find anything that he has said for us to do in our lives, whether it involves our marriages, our businesses, our money, our drinking, our eating, neighbors, government, taxes, whatever the Bible says, I will do it for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true belief. It changes lives. A changed life proves a changed heart. A changed life proves that we've been taught by God. These people weren't. They turned and went away. It's a terrible passage to read. Remember, from, remember how I opened up this morning with Hebrews 12, 25? See that she refused not him that speaketh from heaven. That is right here. Jesus came down from heaven, preached face to face to this audience, and they refused him and turned and went back to what? Animal blood. They went back to altars where animals had their blood shed instead of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary for their sins. This Jesus, through his ambassador today, calls on you to believe on him and to humble yourself and repent and to obey him in every commandment that he's given. Those that he's regenerated will hear that voice and want to obey him. And those that haven't, enjoy your life. Turn and go away. Go back to your little soap bubble games of this life and miss the Lord of glory. It's an indictment against our race. It's an indictment against us because were it not for the grace of God, we would turn away from the Lord of glory ourselves. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Take your burgundy hymnals, please. Number 204. Lord, I believe. Let's sing this as a prayer. Lord, I believe. And we're going to end with the words of the father of the lunatic that Jesus healed, that lunatic son. The father said, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief.